Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you as always is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Tonight's guest, I guess I've been watching for the better part of maybe 15 years. He's a star of Viva La Bam, the Jackass movie series, a DVD called Where the Fuck is Santa, and he's the co-author of a fantastic book you can pick up online called Dream Seller. Recently, he decided to change his life around, and he's here on the Bobcast to get the message out. Ladies and gentlemen, do me a favor, please welcome to the show Mr. Brandon Novak. Novak, how are you? Hey, man, what's happening, bro? How you doing? So, you know, I, I've I've laughed with you through the years. Like, you've you've brought much happiness to, uh, I guess, my family. We used to watch the Jackass movies on Christmas Day. We've always enjoyed, you know, that sense of humor. And in the back of my mind, I've always hoped and dreamed that you would find the path to recovery. Just because I know you struggled with addiction for a long time. And uh, in my circle of friends, there's lots of people I've lost to drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. And it's a terrible thing, but it's also something that needs to have a dialogue. It needs to be talked about. You can't just hide things from people. And from my perspective, I think a good healing process is to just have a conversation about it. So, I mean, first off, congratulations. Um, You're a year. how, How many days exactly are you sober now? I got clean, I got sober May 25th, 2015. So we're looking at a year and some months. I'm terrible at math, but congrats. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was hoping you were going to be better where I'm not, which is math. So I'm, I'm terrible at math. That area. I'm an artist. Well, I can't use that side of my brain. It just doesn't work at all. But first yeah. off, congratulations, you know what I mean? And um, I guess like my first question, for like, what was the defining moment for you where you realized... You know, this is the time that I'm actually going to kick it and I'm going to stick with it. You know, it's funny because I was just listening to the intro that you were giving me. And uh, you were saying over the years I had brought you countless laughs or me and my crew and people I work with and, and how I provided you guys a lot of good times and nice Christmases. And it just, I thought of, of something that just recently happened where lately I've been hearing a lot of those stories. And I, I was just in Cleveland and I met this woman and she told me, that uh, her now husband, they 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 met each other through Jackass, through, through the mutual love of Jackass and the laughs that we brought them at the good times, and, and they recently got married, and how they uh, they kind of thanked me for their marriage, like I was partly partially involved for them tying the knot and starting a family, and now they have two kids, and it just took me down the memory lane of it's so crazy to look at the fact that now that I've I've caused so many people so many good times and I've helped provide laughter and cheer and marriages, babies in a, in a weird fashion. But looking back on it now, how sad and miserable and lonely and depressed I was. You know, and it's just crazy that, that I, was able, it, yeah. I, was, I was able to provide such good times for so many people. But on the flip side of that, like I was dying. You know, and I didn't know, I, I, I didn't know how to get out of the mess that I had created. So I had been in and out of treatment centers and in and out of treatment centers for, for years. So 17 was the first time I walked into a treatment center. And uh, I'm really big on planting the seed in someone's head that recovery is possible and a new way of life is doable, provided they do the few simple suggestions that they teach me in the program that I work. And, uh, and the story I always give <clears throat> was I was 17 in my first treatment center, and 
common theme in my story is that I was not ready to stop drinking or drugging. Therefore, I lost things, or I gave things away, basically. And uh, so I went to this rehab, my very first rehab, for one reason. I was going to go to rehab, and then I was going to report back to my girlfriend at the time, my mother, uh, why I was not those people and why rehab would not help me why I'm not an addict or an alcoholic and I can still drink their drugs successfully. And <laughs> they're just, they got dealt a bad hand, so they need that, but I don't. So I remember being in my first rehab, I was 17, and this old black man walked up to me, and it's in Baltimore City, the rehab, and he said to me, he says, white boy, what are you doing here? I said, uh, heroin. He said, how old are you? I said, 17. He said, do yourself a favor and don't turn 18 in a place like this. And he walked away. As quick as he came, he left. And I can tell you where the four teeth in his mouth were placed. I can tell you what color sweatpants he had on. I can tell you what kind of, what, what, what name brand slippers he had on. I can tell you that he was, uh, that he was different than me. I would never be him. And what I can't tell you about that experience was the name of my counselor in that rehab. I can't tell you about the, the relapse prevention packet they had me working on. I can't tell you about the boundaries, healthy or unhealthy, they were trying to, to instill in me. Because if I could tell you those things, maybe I could identify at that point in time why I was mad and alcoholic, which I did not want to believe. But like I said, I could tell you where teeth were placed. I could tell you that. So I went in there comparing out immediately. I'm white, he's black. I'm 17, he's 75. 70 to 75, clearly homeless. Uh, I, I have money, I live in a house, I have a girlfriend. He has none of that. I will never be him. So I wanted, I remember that because I was gonna go back to my people and tell them that I'm not these people because I'm not all the things that this black man are. So I leave that treatment center, clearly I didn't stay clean. I turned 19, 20, 22, 23, 24, 26, 27, 30, 31, 32, and 34 in a jail or a rehab. Wow. And all I could think of was maybe if I didn't compare out to that black man with four teeth that smoked crack, you, I might not have ended up in this position that I am at today. Maybe my people didn't have to go through that pain. If maybe I would have related as opposed to uh, not relating. Yeah, I understand. So I, knew, I knew that there was like, that there was a better way. So in and out that process, I would go in and out of treatment centers. And, 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 and throughout going in and out of these treatment centers, I started to hear some things. I started to learn some things, which means I had to be held accountable. Because if you don't know, you don't know. But now, because I'm not taking these people's suggestions, that I'm clearly becoming what I am, but I'm slowly starting to realize that I am. All this pain is self-induced. Like, uh, you know, I can't pass the buck on my career. You know, I break a lot of bones to so give me pain medication. I can't pass the buck on my fiance. It's now my ex because she left. It's now solely my fault because I won't do the few simple things that I have to do to not pick up a drink or a drug. Mm -hmm. So this time, I was um, I was in a really bad way. I was, I was in Baltimore. I came home from a tour. I was in Germany. I came home from a tour. We did 27 countries in 28 days. The Fuckface Unstoppable wanted, Tour? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 
mean, we were everywhere, dude. Uh, Slovenia, Paris, uh, Estonia, Tallinn, uh, Germany, uh, England, uh, Sweden, you know, different country every day. It was the best tour. It was one of the best tours ever. Unfortunately, I only remember like half of it. And, uh, and when I got home, I just wanted to like get a shower and get in my bed and lay with my cats and, and be with my fiance at the time and, and just relax, put some clean clothes on. When I got home, the locks were changed on the house and I, and I kicked the door in and she had moved everything. She moved into the city of Philadelphia. And that house, I sat on the floor of that house and I just cried because that house was a mirror image of me. The house was there, but it was completely empty. And, and that's what I had became. I was, I was merely a shell of a person. The drugs and, had taken uh, over. That, yeah, and now I'm 35 years old. I'm homeless. I have a home, but it's gone. You know, I, I provide it, but I would give her the money so she would pay the bills. She would, she would you know, make sure everything was taken care of, the things that I knew nothing about. And um, so I start, I start staying at my friend's house here and there. And I go back to Baltimore because my mother still lives in Baltimore, and it was around the time when the police killed that guy, Freddie Gray, that black kid, that young black kid. And, and it was like the purge in Baltimore City at the time. They were robbing, they were looting, they were stealing. They were lighting police cars on fire. So they put a 10 o'clock curfew on the city. No one was allowed out. So my mother lived about 10 blocks from where this had taken place. So I went down there solely to take care of her. But when I went down there, my addiction ran rampant because I know Baltimore. I, that's where I used my whole life for the most part, heroin that is. And now I'm down there, I can use without my friends, without Bam, without Franz, without you know uh, anybody that I work with saying what the fuck are you doing because I'm out, of the, I'm out of the visual eyesight of anybody and they think I'm taking care of my mother so I'm, 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 I'd leave the house once a day I would go buy $180 worth of heroin and cocaine I would retreat back to this room and I would shoot up all day long I would maybe go down and check on my mother once a day somewhere in between this time I get a phone call from Ben and he says look we're going on a tour to Australia. Let's say, uh, we're going to do a month and a half long tour of the Gold Coast. I know you're in Baltimore. He knew I had been struggling with heroin off and on here recently. And he said, look, if you can just drink wine, you'll do great on this tour. And those are my intentions. I was just going to drink wine, right? But immediately, I'm furious about doing this tour in Australia because I had did a tour in Australia before and uh, and um, and when I did this tour in Australia I uh, the day that the flight to get there is like two to two and a half days because of the time difference and it's really hard to score heroin there and the first time I went I took enough for a month long tour and I, and I was on empty by the time the flight landed in Australia and I was sick most of the time so once again my drug addiction was robbing me of things that, that I should love and that people would love. You know, going to Australia for months at a time and getting paid to do it, I hated it because I couldn't use there. So, but this time, I'm like, fuck it, yeah, I'll do it. I'm now back in Baltimore City. I don't, my fiance left me. I'm homeless. I'm back at my mother's, you know. Uh, like, I have nothing else to do at this point, so let's do this. So 
upstairs, I'm going to show you some footage I'm editing. And when I get upstairs, I pull my cigarettes out of my pocket, and, and I just bought $1,000 worth of heroin. All the heroin falls out of my pocket. And he's furious. He says, you got to get the you get the fuck out of my house, and you're not going on this tour. And instead of me being so angry that I lost another opportunity due to my addiction, you would have thought I hit the mega millions. Because now I don't have to go to Australia. I don't have to be responsible. I don't have to be reliable. I don't have to be dependable. I can go back to Baltimore and continue to use full time. And uh, I, I, I get on a train. I get back to my mother's house. And I knock on the door. I said, Mom, congratulations. The tour's been canceled. And she says, no, it's not, Brandon. They've called and told me everything. And that night, I've had a lot lower bottoms. You know, my bottoms consist of me losing everything, being homeless in Baltimore City, selling my ass on the street corner for $10. And I don't even go that way, but like when the dope man calls and I need $10, I will do anything necessary to get it. Mm-hmm. You can be gay. And I have no problem with gays at all. But I'm just trying to, to convey the message of how strong the disease of addiction is. Yeah. So, so, uh, so I'm back there. She tells me that. Now, I haven't lived with my mother or even been around her that much in seven years. The last time I left, you know, I was in a really bad way. She had to buy me a plot in a cemetery. A few people took life insurance policies out of it because they thought I was going to die from my addiction. Now, in that time of being gone from my mother's house, I had now been on movies that have broke box office records. I've written a book that's a New York Times seller about addiction. So, like, when I would come back in between those times, she would parade me around her neighborhood. I would take pictures of people. I would sign autographs. And now this night, <clears throat> she had to call my brother, who's an attorney. After I left, they went upstairs and they cleaned that room out that I was staying in for those two months that I was in Baltimore. And it looked like a, a crime. It looked like a murder, a homicide scene. It, there was needles. There was blood. There was cookers. There was bags. So they put a restraining order out against me so I couldn't be at her house. So now my friends have left the country. My, my family is taking a restraint order against me. In theory and on paper, I'm a very successful individual. In reality, all I own that in my bag that I'm carrying with me are eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, and a stick of deodorant. And I'm now walking the streets of Baltimore City and I find myself, I swear to God, in the same exact abandoned house that I left nine years ago. The same one. Mm-hmm. Not like next to the, not like next door, up the street, around the corner. The same fucking house. And the only thing that changed in that house were the faces. It was still just as dark. It was still just as drab. Still just as damp. Still just as heartless. And uh, I said, once again, that guy. That 70 to 75 year old black man that had clearly wasn't the storm of addiction for years, who had four teeth in his mouth and who was a crack addict, who I wasn't, once again reaffirmed to me that I was. And I said, something has to change here. Like, because once again, I knew that this was all self induced because I won't do the few necessary things I have to do without drink. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I called my sponsor in Philadelphia. He, uh, he tells me to get on a train. 
he tells me to get on a train. Him and some fellas will pick me up from the train station and take me to a rehab the next morning. And I'm 35 at this point. Like, I've used, we did a timeline. I have two more books getting ready to come out. So my, my publisher, my co-author, they did a timeline. My very first arrest was in New York at 17 years old for possession of heroin. I literally walked into this rehab 20 years later to the day for a heroin problem. So what I'm trying to say is that I've used for 20 years and I've tried every way that I could possibly think of to use successfully. And at my point, my age and my life with where I'm at with things, I can't even think of a lie to tell myself how a glass of wine or sniffing a bag of dope could possibly work out different for me this time. Yeah. You know, so like, I've known that I'm an alcoholic for years. I know that when I pick up a drink, my life becomes unmanageable because if that wasn't the case, my mother wouldn't have bought me a prod. My old sponsor wouldn't have taken a life insurance policy out on me. I wouldn't end up homeless when I drink. But the difference, this is where the terms of my contract changed is when I accepted that I'm an alcoholic because now I know the root of my problem, which means it can be addressed. You know, because for years, <clears throat> let's put it in this parallel. I'm driving down the street. I get a flat tire. I pull the car off to the side of the highway. I think it's the engine. So I've been working on the engine for 20 years, overlooking the fact that it's simply a flat tire. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you like, can fix it, yeah. I, Exactly. Now I know it. I know where the problem lies, so the problem can be addressed. The problem can be fixed. That's a good way to, so, to look um, at it. You know what I mean? Like you, your your sh your shell is a, a car, and your engine can be fixed. You can run again. You know. Yeah. Let me ask so, you a question. Like like speaking from you know the the addict perspective, why why do you think it is? The, why does the disease? continue to make excuses for people who are using like you know how you were saying like this isn't me I'm not this person like why is it just built into our DNA because like we talked before on the phone previously to we record the podcast and I agree that you know addiction is a disease it's it's something that's it's it's something that you have inside of you so like why do you think it is it just because it's self-denial that you can't come to terms with the fact that you need to be repaired for me, I can only speak for me. Right? Uh, anything I say are, are stories that I've lived, that I've done. These aren't like hypotheses that I think are correct or that could possibly happen. Yeah. For me, I, I didn't want to stop. I wasn't ready to stop, so I didn't want to fix it. You know, I wanted mm -hmm. to figure out a way to use or drink successfully. Keep in, a perfect world, in a perfect world, I wanted to go to a really expensive therapist on Fifth Avenue or somewhere in Times Square who had really good credentials, pay a couple grand for a few sessions, talk with her for an hour, and then after that hour's up, her say, okay, Brandon, like, you're good. Now you can go have a glass of wine on the weekend. You can yeah. sip a bag of dope on the weekend. The last thing I wanted to do was, was give up my lover who I've been with for 20 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, it's tough. So, like, it doesn't matter for me where the exact point in time in my life that I became an alcoholic. Because, like, that's the past. I, I, the only thing I can change is the 
Alzheimer's disease because it was untreated. Uh, he used to take me to strip bars, strip joints, and when he'd be in the business, when he'd be in the back doing business, you know, selling drugs to whoever, they would leave me at the, he would leave me at the bar stool, and all the dancers would kind of babysit me, and they would pull, they would sit me up to the bar, they would pour me shot, they would put shot glasses on the bar, they would pour out, uh, Coke and Sprite into these shot glasses. I would do the shots. The girls would applaud, and my dad would look at me with with, with a look of like my son's made it. You know what yeah, I mean? That must be so tough like, for you. Yeah, it, it, it was. You know, I, I had a, a pretty tough upbringing. But the fact is, it doesn't matter when, what day, where I was at, who I was with, what month, what year that took place. Like, that's not going to change anything for me now, knowing where, when, yeah. and with whom it's I all about today, right? Exactly. So, so like, kind of my... like, for somebody that's listening to this podcast who may be in a similar situation, you know, facing addiction straight on, what type of advice would you give them to get the, the treatment? I mean, for me, I know that when you talk to someone who's an addict, they have to change for themselves. They can't do it for their mom, their dads, their cousins, their yeah. brother, you know? So, like, what would you would like to say to somebody who right now may need help? I mean, for me, for many years, I, 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 I've tried everything. I, I would buy new homes. I would move to different states, countries. At one point, I even moved to Finland, thinking that, like, the geographical change would help me. Like, I could really start around Finland. For fuck's sake, they don't even speak my language. So, like, I can have a brand new, fresh start there. Uh, I would change women. I would change careers. I would change friends, uh, cars. You name it, I would change it. External things, thinking that that would provide me happiness. And I've had a lot of things at a lot of different times in my life. I've had a lot of resources. I've had a lot of options. I've had a lot of opportunities. And at the end of the day, I always found myself sitting with myself by myself. And I, I did not get that it had to come from within. It had to come from internal change, not external change. And uh, once I admitted, because this was a tough thing for me. After I wrote my book, you know, I would go into the program. They would say, okay, you know, the few simple suggestions we were going to give to you are Get a sponsor, get a home group, work the steps, don't drink or drug under any and all circumstances, and get a God of the understanding. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I would do, what I like to call it, I would loiter with the intent to recover. Mm -hmm. I would get a sponsor, I would get a home group. I, I, I can fellowship fairly easy because I'm a people person, so I have no problem making friends, but I would not work the steps because... The word work wasn't in my forte unless it paid with a glass of wine or a bag of heroin. And then you wanted me to work these steps and wait for change on God's time, not my time. And, I, and I'm like, fuck, like I need results yesterday, last month, or last year. I can't hope on a pipe dream that like God's going to provide me what I need whenever he's ready. That's like fucking third world country farm to me, you know? So, uh... So finally, when I, when I finally, I had tried everything else and avoided these steps like AIDS, man. But when I started working these steps, that transformation had taken place. And, and, and I realized that once, because what was so tough was I wrote that book and I was getting hundreds of thousands of letters from all around the world of, of you thanking me because now 
you know why your wife doesn't come home at night. Uh, of, of a man thanking me because now he knows why his daughter won't take that needle out of her arms. Or a woman thanking me because her son read my book and he went to treatment. You know, so now I'm getting letters from people saying I've saved their life. Mm-hmm. So that was a blessing and a curse for me because I already think I'm too smart for my own good. So now you want me to come in here and succumb to these simple suggestions that you people do? Like I'm a published author who saves people lives, saves people's lives on a dictionary. This doesn't apply to me. And when I finally realized that I'm the last person that knows anything about sobriety, I had a shot. I almost like dumbed my way into this because mm-hmm. I was so sick when I went in this time, mentally, physically, spiritually, that when they gave me an offer. I couldn't even come back with a counteroffer because it took too much effort. I couldn't even put together a full sentence, so I just started to agree with anything they told me because clearly I accepted that they knew better than I did and that when I make decisions or I make plans, they end horribly. So, long story short, Brandon got out of Brandon's way. Brandon stopped attending Brandon's Anonymous. Brandon stopped being God. And, and I just... Believe it or not, I got out of my way and my life started getting a lot better. I started taking suggestions from people who were clean and sober. I, I started doing what they suggested. If they told me to go stand on my head in the corner for four hours, I would have did it. Why, I don't know, but because I wanted to stay sober and I believed that they were telling me it was going to help me. My desperation had turned to willingness. My willingness turned to faith. You know? Yeah. I mean... It's a, it's a tough process, but I mean, like I said at the, the beginning of this podcast, I mean, I'm really happy that, you know, you're on this path. Um, what, the, the top of your head, I mean, like, since you've got clean, what's what's changed the most? <laughs> Dude, I, I can't even fucking, I, I guess, the list is endless, but right now, okay. What are you, ex- what are you experiencing that change. you've previously not experienced before? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, I've been on parole or probation since I've been 18 years old. I'm now 37 years old. I've never been on parole or probation in between those times. By simply putting that drink down and following the suggestions that people tell me, for the first time in my life six months ago, I've signed my completion papers. I'm literally a free man. I don't have to tell anybody where I go, who I go, or when I go. Um, I'm a free man in that sense. I'm a free man in the fact that when I'm drinking and drugging, that dictates where I go, with whom I go with, and when I go. It dictates who I spend my time with, who I say I love, who I don't love. I become a slave to the drink and drugs. And I'm a free man from alcohol and drugs. I'm a free man from the state of Pennsylvania, the state of Baltimore. I can go anywhere in the world. Uh... I have, they're re-releasing my first book and they're adding a new ending to it and two bonus chapters and a new cover. I have two more books coming out with that, so it'll be a trilogy set. I have a documentary that's going to be finished editing at the end of this year. It's going to go on the Sundance and the Cannes Film Festival, which is called Where Is My Needle? Um, I went from unemployable to a business owner you know I, 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 I all those words that don't work for me when I'm drinking 
know, jogging such as reliable, dependable, uh, honest, uh, like I am all those plus some. When I tell you I'll show up, I show up. Well, you don't have to call me a billion times in a day. Uh, I'm a man of honor, faith, and dignity. All those things that I wasn't, and, and on top of that, I, I'm clean and sober. That right there is like a tremendous feat in itself. And not only for a day or for an hour, for coming up on 14 months. Which is awesome. You know, and, and I was the kind of alcoholic that when I had a plan B, a choice, or an option, I could justify to myself why a drink or a drug would make sense. Yeah. And now I have a lot of plan Bs, I have a lot of choices, I have a lot of options, I have a lot of resources, and the farthest thing from my mind is a drink or a drug. That, that, I know? mean, it's, it's, it's a great transformation, you know? Yeah. Let me ask you a question. So, in my circle of friends, um, a lot of us were musicians in our 20s and stuff like that, and we were always around the party scene. And uh, for a person who's trying to get clean and sober, to do what they do, you know, um, facing, you know, addicts, you know, and seeing, you know, uh, drug culture all around you. I mean, obviously, you're still Novak, you know what I mean? But now you're clean. What type of steps can someone take to continue to do what they love but keep drugs and alcohol at bay? Um, for me, what I continue to do on a daily basis is and this is another form of transformation that came about in this program. When I'm drinking and drugging, the core of my disease is that I'm selfish and I'm self-centered, which means it's me, 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 me. And if I have five minutes, maybe you if I feel like it, right? Mm-hmm. So when I got clean this time, I originally got clean to make my life better. So throughout this process, it's like peeling layers of an onion. And the more that I peel back these layers of onion, I find different parts of myself. And where I'm at in my life now is that I stay sober to make the world a better place, and in turn, my world is better. So I continuously help another alcoholic. I go to meetings. I, I speak at public engagements. Uh, you know, I-, I-, I carry the message of hope. And, and, and I try to raise awareness for this disease that, that in reality, <clears throat> while we're talking on this phone, at least three people will die. Yeah. At least. In the world. At least three people will die, die during our conversation due to a disease when it's left untreated. So I try to, like, like I feel like this is my calling in life. <clears throat> this is why God put me on this earth. This, what I'm doing right now Everything else that I've accomplished in my life does not compare to the feelings that I get from when I can, God willing, plant a seed in that one person's head that is deemed helpless or hopeless. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's heavy to me. And that, to help someone, that yeah. Gets me, that gets me high. I th- yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's what humans are put on this earth to do is uh, to help one another. And sadly, I mean... In, in today's world, in 2016, it seems that people would rather hurt one another rather than help. So I applaud your your message there. You know, I think that I mean I was just I just got back from Fort Lauderdale. And I was sharing in this treatment center, right? And they didn't know I was coming. I was like a surprise guest speaker, and all of a sudden one day 
they had a group, they said, today we have a special guest speaker, I come in, I share my story, and after I'm done, this fella in the back raises his hand, right? And he says, look, I hope this doesn't offend you, but two months ago, before I came into this treatment, me and some friends of mine were talking, and he was from Chicago, and he said, you came up in the conversation, and I didn't know them, they didn't know me, they knew of me, and they said, now he's a patient in this rehab that I'm speaking at. And he said, your name came up in the conversation. And we all laughed and said, that you're nothing but a junk box. And you're only ever going to be a junk box. And now, you could have never told me in a million years I'd be sitting in rehab. And you're coming in sharing your story. And that made everything all worth it. Yeah, perspective right there. That kid ever thinks that he can't get it. The same guy that they were making fun of two months ago for being a strung out junkie, that's all I ever be, has now just provided him with a shot of hope. So God forbid he's ready to give up one day, he can think back on that person that he thought would be dead with a needle in his arm, had changed. It's a powerful message. Um, so you were in Fort Lauderdale and uh, when we, we spoke, uh, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, you were preparing um, to go do a show. Um, I saw some YouTube footage. You did some interviews of some uh, some celebrity guests, the the Random Hero Festival. So, yeah, 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 that was beautiful. So that was uh, in Ryan Dunn's hometown. Um, you had mentioned to me before that you never really got a chance to say goodbye to him. You were incarcerated at the time. What was it like traveling out to his hometown and seeing his final resting place? You know, I had... You're right, I was incarcerated that terrible morning that he uh, he lost his life. And it happened like 2.30 in the morning. For some reason, I was doing a year stint in prison because uh, of my addiction. And I woke up, they woke me up at like 7 in the morning because I had mail. So I walked out of my uh, my cell, I go get the mail, and I, and I stopped, and I was sitting on my on the steps going back up to my cell, and I was uh, listening to some music on the headphones, just kind of zoning out. And this dude walks up to me and taps me, and I take the headphones out and said, did you hear what happened? I said, no. He said, your friend died. My first initial thought that it was Dan. Yeah. Uh, because everyone knew who I was, and, and you know everyone knows that he's my best friend in the world. And I said, who? And he said, Ryan Dunn. And I immediately, I, I changed the station on the radio, and I started hearing the news. And then I went into my cell, I turned the news on, and I saw they had a live feed of Bam standing on the side of the highway where this whole accident took place. And he was lost. He was crying unconsolably. His wife at the time was hugging him. He was surrounded by people, and I could just see that he was fucked in a bad way. Mm-hmm. So not only did one of my best friends kill, die, my other best friend is there, helpless and hopeless on the side of the road. And you can't be with him. And I can't do anything except watch from my prison cell. And I can only, and I'm there because of my addiction. Once again, fully self-induced. And uh, that pain is indescribable. I can't put to words how that made me feel. Yeah. And I put in 
paperwork. My lawyer put in paperwork to have me be able to go to the funeral. They, they denied everything. They wouldn't let me leave because I was a high-profile inmate. Uh, <clears throat> my fiance at the time, she went on behalf of me and paid my respects. Um, but I had never been able to, to come to come come to grips with that I, because I was never able to put closure on it. So I get out a year later, the funeral has taken place, he's been buried, uh, and I kind of just missed that whole part of that. And um, fast forward five years later, I'm now clean and sober, the Random Hero Festival takes place, Bam, everyone's going. And um, so, of course, I immediately jumped on the opportunity to go. And uh, it was in his honor. It was people reuniting for the love of that man who had one of the most beautiful hearts I've ever came across in my life, who tried to help me time after time, only for me to let him down countless amount of times. And uh, so it was my duty, it was my job to go there and help keep his spirit alive. And not only that, I was able to go to his grave site and sit down and, and have a smoke with him, chat with him, make my amends to him, apologize for all the wrongs, and God willing, make my wrongs right. Mm -hmm. I was being accountable for my actions. Um, and, and I left there with, with, with such a closure, a closure that I never knew needed, that was, a closure that I never knew that was so desperately needed. Yeah. Um, it's tough and, and so a friend. It was a it was a beautiful experience in every sense of the word, well, I'm sure wherever he is, he's looking at down, down at you right now, and he he's proud of you, of your accomplishments, you know? He's always he, yeah. he's always going to yeah, be with man. you, you know? Um, I think yeah. that's that's a, a very powerful message, too, you know, being able to, to say goodbye to people, you know? I mean, it's it's a hard thing. Um, in my circle of friends, we lost somebody, and it was just completely unexpected to uh, drugs, and it, it happened so abruptly. And actually, yesterday, it was three years, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of them, you know, and um, yeah. I, I always just struggle with, you know, people who are suffering from addiction because it's, it's, it's such a terrible thing. And it's, 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 I think in our culture, a lot of times when someone's an addict or someone's a junkie, we tend to knock them down, you know, because they're making decisions that necessarily aren't, you know, it's completely out of character, whether it be stealing money or doing this or that. I think it's important that we remember that these are people that we loved and they, we still love them. And you have to be able to, you know, accept them for who they are. But I think that in my situation, like, we never really talked about it, you know? Like, I thought he was clean, you know what I mean? Like, and it just kind of happened abruptly. And there's not a day that goes by that I wish that I didn't just, you know, bring him over and just talk to him about it, you know? And just be like, look, man, you, there is a path to recovery because I think... A lot of times for people who are suffering from drug and alcohol addiction, they just think there's no way out. This is me. I can't change. I, I, I want to change, but there's not a single part of me that, that will allow myself to get to this, 
you know, plateau of success. So, I mean, like I said before at the beginning, I was really happy that, you know, I started seeing like Instagram feeds of Novak getting himself back together over the course of one year, the transformation and the positive message that you've brought not only to this podcast, but as you continue to travel around America, you know, I, I applaud each step and I think that, you know, you're doing the right thing, bro. Thank you, man. That, that means the world to me. And, and my, I believe my my calling is just because, like I said, my mother bought me a plot because people took policies out on me. My life was laid out that I was going to die with a needle on my arm. So I was like that helpless, hopeless addict. So now all I want to do every day is, is God willing, plant the seed in that one person's head that it doesn't have to end that way. You know? And, and I spoke at this candlelight vigil in Delaware County a couple weeks ago. And I stood at this podium and, and oddly enough, if this isn't transformation, I don't know what it is. So I told you I was going to dictate I was going to die that way. Now I'm being called to share at candlelit vigils to raise awareness about the disease of addiction. So not only did that happen, I shared the stage with another guest speaker who was the district attorney of Delaware County, the same man that imprisoned me for a year because I was a menace to society and I couldn't stop breaking the law because I needed my drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. So he had no idea I was sharing that stage with him. And then when I got there, I don't even know if he knew then. And after that, the same man that put me in prison for a year because I was a menace to society came up to me and hugged me and said, Brandon, if there's any, if there's ever anything you need, please don't hesitate to ask. That's awesome. That must have made you feel really good, you know? Uh, to say the least, man. To say the least. So... In, oh. the, in the future, I mean, I guess you're going to continue to do this path. You're going to continue to travel around the country and speak at these events. Yeah. Yes, and you, you, you mentioned uh, in the middle of this podcast that there's a, a new edition of Dream Seller as well as two different novels to complete the Novak trilogy, which I think is really cool. And yeah. uh, you said uh, the documentary Where's My Needle will be out sometime next year? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's going to be finished this year. At the end of this year, it'll be finished being editing. Because this movie has been, this documentary has been in the works for eight years. They've been following me and filming me. Mm-hmm. And when they originally, when they initially presented me with this opportunity, all I heard was they would pay me cash for every interview. That's all I needed to hear because I was still strung out. So I'm like, let's do this. So I, I throughout eight years, I've had camera crews following me at some really high highs and some really, really low lows. Mm-hmm. And there's, professional skateboarders, there's musicians, there's actors, there's family, there's friends, there's rehabs, doctors, they've interviewed, you name it, they, you, you think of it, you name it, they've interviewed. Um, and there was always the common theme, Novak has such a great future, but Novak can do so many great things, but there was no ending to this. Now, finally, thank God, there's an ending. And we're, we're finishing the ending scene for this now, and interviews, and uh, and uh, so it'll be done being edited this year, end of this year, and then it's going to go to Sundance and the Cannes Film Festival, and they'll figure out how it's going to be distributed, how we're going to put it out, you know, and that's once again 
Kids are so getting hooked on it. Be, I mean, oxys, yeah, and it's just—it's—it's uh, it's crazy how the the culture changed. And uh, kids today, I mean, you know, weed and alcohol just isn't enough. And now they're using hard stuff, and before you know it, they're finding themselves in trouble. You know, and it, it's a path to, to destruction. Really, it's a shame that drugs were even invented in the first place. Really, because it just destroys so many people's lives, destroys families. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the most important thing is if you know somebody that needs help or if you know somebody who's struggling with addiction, you need to open a course of dialogue with them and you need to, to help exactly. them to get to get to where they need to be. You know what I mean? Because like you said, there is no more but Brandon Novak can't do this. There is no more but he's, he can't put himself out there because now, I mean, I see it yeah as an ending, but I also see that this day, today, right now, this is a beginning for you. You know what I mean. Each day is a new beginning, and you're going to be able to. It's, re- it's really like it's like a rebirth, man. Totally. And, and I mean, the fact of the matter is, if any addict or alcoholic that's still caught up in the grips, it's yeah. never too late as long as they're breathing. So I mean, you've you've brought countless years of happiness through you know the films, the TV shows, but now it's a whole new ball game, really. And I mean, I hope that you continue on the path. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy that we finally got a chance to do this podcast because I think there's a lot of great content in here. If someone's out there struggling with addiction, get help. Call someone you love. Call your mom. Call your dad. Call your best friend. Hell, even talk to your dog or cat about it. Just get yourself to a point where you can realize that you can get there. And, I mean, I wish that we could maybe track down that 75-year-old black man for you because, I mean, he what, he'd be up in his 90s now, but, I mean... It's it's a powerful message that that he's always been there for you in a way, yeah. and you know he's continued and, to. Uh, I don't have it on me now, but I'll get back in touch with you. And if anyone does need help, man, I, I can provide a number where they can direct you in the right resources. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, uh, we can provide can, information can up, below here on the podcast for people um, if they need it. Um, but once again, really uh, appreciate you coming on the show on the Bobcast here because I mean like I said you know I'm really proud of you and um, I hope you continue to do great things thank you brother I appreciate it man and like I said man as long as an addict or alcoholic is breathing it's never too late it's never too late ladies and gentlemen my guest today has been Brandon Novak my name's Bob and this has been another episode of Bob